Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Russell. Hello, everyone. This is Ben. Today on the show, we have Tate Chamberlain. Tate is pushing the envelope on social, educational, and musical events by continually reintegrating an arsenal of new concepts and human connections. On Mountain Meister today, we'll be highlighting one of those events called Avalanche, an event which combines the festival atmosphere with avalanche awareness. Tate, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Tate, welcome. I saw on your website, Chamberlain Productions, you describe your event business like this. The arsenal will serve well as he descends upon the world like a platinum-fisted pterodactyl dropping artistic carpet bombs, carrying the seed of expression and social conglomeration. Doesn't stop there. Crushing underfoot the banality of average events, flying high the mighty banner of unconventional creativity, and blasting his mighty war horns across the battlefields of entertainment. Tate, you sound like a pretty colorful guy. Tell us about yourself. Trying to be, yeah. We um, <laughs> we find ourselves wanting to, you know, be do-gooders like anybody else would. We try and create cool social experiences where people can learn and also fuse that with a really good time because everybody likes to have a good time and and party. And you don't often find good causes and life-saving causes with great social lubricant we call it lately yeah and it's a pretty interesting business model that you have where did it all start when you were growing up were you always this kind of creative person that just had to do something different yeah i've always kind of had that entrepreneur side i've always loved business i've always loved doing things with nonprofits because they're cool and they're very authentic experiences for people and I've lived in both worlds and I've learned that nonprofits always struggle financially. They, they'll lose support when they spend money on marketing and advertising. They'll lose good employees when they go off to the private sector because they can pay more. And they'll lose kind of funding when you spend money trying new things and failing, which kind of limits innovation. And so what could a better model look like. And, and what we've come up with is a sustainable business that's socially responsible. What, what could that look like? Yeah, it's a super interesting topic. But you're actually, you're a pretty outdoorsy guy. You're pretty competitive. What are some of the things you like to do in the outdoors? Well, I love, I love backcountry, almost anything. Snowmobiling, skiing, all the way down to sledding. Uh, summertime, I'll be racing sailboats. Uh, I play golf. I like to shoot guns because it's Montana. <laughs> And uh, kind of anything outdoors, it's really a, a wonderful place to, to be able to play and go backpacking and do kind of whatever you want. Tell us about the sailing, because Russell was telling me that you do some pretty competitive sailing. Yeah, I uh, race a couple of types of boats. Uh, we race an I-14 and one called a Fireball. And what exactly are those? They're between 14 and 16 feet, and okay. they have trapeze harnesses, so you're literally just like hanging off the side of the boat. Uh, flying through the water 
um, you're, you're kind of horizontal to the water and, uh, you know, the boats are only about 175 pounds and they just, they just fly there. Everybody kind of has this stigma that you have to be loaded to go sailing, but <laughs> there's this really awesome grungy side of the sport that is really great and a lot of fun. Wow. 175 pounds. Yeah. So if it's really windy, is there any chance of you kind of catching air off of the water? Yeah, we do that. And I actually, uh, I'm recovering from uh, knee surgery. I dislocated my patella and chipped my femur uh, a couple summers ago at the North American Championships in Hood River, Oregon. Wow. And since the boat's so light and, you know, when it gets really windy on the, the river, th- the waves begin to chop. Mm-hmm. And the boats are small and they'll do what's called, they'll kind of nosedive sometimes into the, the swell of the water. And that causes the boat to nosedive and kind of cartwheel. Well, doesn't sound that much fun. <laughs> so how, how competitive do you get with these races? Well, uh, we're still from Montana. I mean, we, we race against a lot of competitive classes that are from kind of ocean states. Hmm. So we, we want to be as competitive as we can, but we also have great opportunities. I mean, we've, we've raced in two world championships, a couple of U.S. nationals, and we're really in it for kind of that international competition, I think, which is, has been really neat. I mean, not everyone that races sailboats competes at that level. Do you think that has driven your fire into your business world as well? I think it definitely has a place. I, we're, we're definitely competitive. I think that we really try and piece together what are the things that bring people together. Mm-hmm. And competition is one of those things. So if we can bring that into it and uh, create a challenge for people is a, is a really awesome step. Yeah, absolutely. How many, just really quickly, how many people are on one of these boats when you're racing them? So on, on these two boats in particular, it's a, t- there's a skipper and a crew. I'm the crew on them. There's a, there's a skipper of the boat that it's, it's great. They'll kind of, he'll kind of pay for all the trips and pay for all the entry fees. And it's, uh, and all I have to do is work the sales and, and help out with tactics. Uh, and so I get to run the spinnaker and I'm always on kind of the, the trapeze, which is a whole lot of fun. And then just kind of look around for other boats and, um, help be a tactician. Hmm. So, I mean, we'll get into avalanche in a minute, but is there any sort of business that you'd like to do with sailboat racing as well? That that's similar where you could maybe have an event out of it. You know, we've, we've talked about it. The, the world championships, each country gets to put in a bid for, uh, it's about every four years out, uh, countries are allowed to put in a bid to host the, the regatta. Hmm. We looked into doing the 2014 World Championships for this fireball class uh, in San Francisco Bay, um, but the fleet kind of isn't there, and we were kind of competing with what was going on with the America's Cup this year. And I, I think that's something that's definitely in our sights and something we'd we'd love to give it a try. Um, and we just haven't had the opportunity to, to host a regatta that we would love to. Absolutely. So yeah, let's get into Chamberlain Productions and specifically Avalanche. You're combining an event, like we've said before, with some sort of activism. In Avalanche's case, it's for avalanche safety. So what are you teaching at these events and how are they constructed? Kind of this day and age, everybody's real tired of just having stuff put in their faces, you know, advertising everywhere. And, uh, it's, it's kind of lost its authenticity. And so where we find our authenticity is finding the points to be activists about and creating, and creating, you know, good educational content and fusing that all together. And, and so we've really been trying to build a platform that can 
bring the heroes in. We've got really great ambassadors. We've got Dean Cummings and Jeremy Jones and Conrad Anchor. And they'll come to some of our stops and, you know, kind of be that inspirational piece of storytelling where people can go ask questions and hear awesome mountaineering war stories from them. Then we'll also, you know, fuse it with local avalanche centers. So they're the best with the local knowledge. We are not. And so we'll try and cater a space where they can come out and nerd out about what they do. So they'll do kind of the on snow stuff and they'll do kind of the core of the education. And then after those two, we'll bring in search and rescue so we can do the topics, you know, what to do to not get in the situation, what you do when you're on top of the world. And then what happens when you get into a situation that you need to get out of. And so we try and bring in all those aspects and we, we try and make it more storytelling rather than just a, you know, a standard lecture. And we try and create an experience where people can live their own stories going through it all. Yeah, I think it's great that you combine all of the aspects, like you said, because one thing that I've learned through this podcast is that the best way to survive an avalanche is actually not to get in one. <laughs> so there's yeah. avoiding avalanches and also knowing how to survive if you happen to get into one. So kudos to you guys. Thanks. You guys have put yourself in a pretty good place. I mean, you're not just some tiny little production company. You're in the center of the outdoor retailer show. You're running these panels with all these experts. And one of the main topics of discussion, it seemed like, was avalanche safety. You know, there's all this new gear out there that's amazing. And all these new riders and skiers in the backcountry what's the best way to communicate this? And it was this big discussion. You guys are standing right next to it. It's like, well, Avalanche. like, <laughs> Yeah. And, there, sh- and shows everywhere, way, too. So. Bozeman, Montana, Vail, Salt Lake City. So it looks like you're placed pretty well locationally. Yeah, and we're. Um, I just got back from a scouting trip in Valdez. Um, one of our ambassadors, Dean Cummings, is kind of helping us uh, work with the city on bringing it up there as well. So great. we could have a really great opportunity to to be in the really, really big mountains. How big are these events? How many people are actually going to them? Well, the the education side, it does lean a little smaller, but we've had as many as, you know, 150 people at mm-hmm. our um, our classes. But where we really where we really shine is, you know, the production side. We have to have that social side to it to get new people that may not that may not go otherwise. A lot of times uh, we do a lot of human rights stuff too. And and what we've come up with is people don't show up unless they're directly affected by it or the cause. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get, uh, how do you do more outreach? And it's come down to bringing in good entertainment to us. So we've, uh, during the avalanche tour, you know, we, we've brought in bone thugs and we've had Michael Franti and spearhead and black alicious. And um, so we really try and, bring in national touring artists that will help sell tickets and sustain us. And we don't pitch it as, you know, support this cause. We've got a bunch of local bands. That's, that's great and admirable at all, but it's not as sustainable as it, as it should be or could be. Do you find yourself talking to any of these people that are going to more of the concert side of it and saying, you know, have you heard of Avalanche? Did you get anything out of this? What's the response been from that? Most is pretty positive. There, it depends on kind of who the headliner is. We'll have a lot of people that are that are just there to see the show. Okay, yeah. But we'll also figure out cool ways to get them involved. For instance, we'll set up our, our portable transceiver park 
where if you've never learned how to use a transceiver, mm-hmm. uh, you can do this near the front entrance of the gate and earn like free VIP upgrades to the show. And then for another festival we have, if you go to five out of eight of the educational programs, then you get a free concert ticket. And so we'll, we'll really try and create cool incentives for people that are just going to the show or don't have money to go to the show. We'll, we'll make sure there's a way that you can go and we'll try and create that educational process through it and make it fun as well. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you a few more tough questions just because it's hard to generalize people, obviously, and everyone's different, has their own experiences. But when you have talked to these people and they are just coming for the concert, are they actually ever even going into the backcountry? That's part of it. I mean, how do we weed people out if there's not really a way to do that? Um, you know, for instance, our our show in Bozeman is in the fall. It's in late November. And so we kind of generalize it, not just backcountry, but just kind of that exciting winter experience. You know, it could be snowman building or snowshoeing or anything like that. Um, there's no way we can really tell. A lot of times we find ourselves in the gray area. Uh, because it's not for profit, it's not nonprofit, and you know it's a mix of everything in between. And and with that, and with bringing in you know big headliners, there is a certain shallowness to the event, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. And so we have to, we do have to cater to that because it's that's just what reality is. And if we can bring them in and you know even start a conversation with them or um, spark curiosity, that's that's really a great thing for us to to, to be able to do. Yeah, and you you call yourself a experimental events type business. You've taken a lot of risks with this, and like you've said, you've you've had really good successes, and of course, there's failures. Do you see anything else that's worth experimenting with in the future that has to do with avalanche awareness or the outdoors? I think climate change will have a lot to do with it. To even sustain avalanche, which is very winter-related, mm-hmm. we need to start branching off into how we keep the snow around. And so, you know, we work a lot with Protect Our Winners. They've won uh, our Avalanche Best Company of the Year award for the last couple of years. And uh, Conrad Anker's really big on it. He was just at the White House talking about climate change. And, and I think that, you know, for Avalanche to grow, we really need to start getting into that territory a little bit more. Interesting. Yeah, Russell, I like what you brought up there about how it's a very tricky problem combining two Kind of, I mean, they're they're kind of opposites, right? Avalanche awareness and then this entertainment side. But both necessary to be together. You need that entertainment side to attract people and to bring traffic into the avalanche awareness. So it is a tricky problem. And I want to talk about one more problem, uh, which I think is interesting. And maybe not a problem, but more of a challenge. And that is that you're combining an idea like event planning, which is a for-profit business normally, with the purpose of something like avalanche awareness, which is normally something done by a nonprofit. So is that what the problem is? Tell us exactly what you're facing going forward. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a problem. I think it's, it's definitely a challenge and a new way to think about business. And being in, we call it gray area, and people either love it or hate it. Um, but because they apply it to right and wrong. But if you can, we kind of look at our events and tell people to look at them through a kaleidoscope. Since there's all this gray area and all this, you know, if it's a for-profit, then they're just greedy and Mm -hmm. uh, the money's going to go towards getting lobster in their Mercedes. 
you know, that's that's what we grew up in our face through the 90s and early 2000s. And I, I think that this new kind of millennial generation coming up uh, wants to put their faith in something else rather than right and wrong. They want to, you know, learn stories and have kind of a, a more authentic way of doing things. And and if we can come across authentically with our general real problems with not being able to advertise like we want to or brand ourselves like we want to or spend money on entertainment and marketing like we want to and trying new ideas and failing. I mean, all those things for nonprofits, they lose funding and it's, it's hard to get back on track. And so if we can create something sustainable with ticket sales and grants and sure, we'll take donations too, because you know, this is a, this has a great purpose to it. They're the same thing. I mean, and our big kind of deal breaker with the nonprofit thing is, is if we really want to do good, then let's invest in social fabric and inspire future leaders. And if we pay taxes with that, then we can trust them to spend our money on great community projects and nonprofits don't pay taxes on things like that. So we really want to we want to create something new. So would this model work if you decided okay we're going to be a nonprofit? I think so. What I've been learning about it, we've got a we run a sculpture program in Bozeman called the Gallatin Art Crossing, and it's going through the growing pains of getting a nonprofit, and it's a whole lot of work. And and I really understand why it has to go that way, but I just really think businesses can do a better job of being socially accountable. And I mean, there's, there's so much legwork and effort put into becoming a nonprofit on its own. People in years past have kind of ruined it for everyone with, with greed and things like that. No, I think the idea of thinking of creative solutions and business solutions to uh, make this thing work is the way to go. Yeah, and I, I see what you're saying about being a nonprofit as well, too, because you have a bunch of loops you kind of have to jump through with being a nonprofit because people that are donating would feel more of an obligation for you to do things a certain way, to not spend your money on lobster and Mercedes and that kind of stuff. So that doesn't solve all your problems if you become a nonprofit. Right. So. I think you're right. It needs to be some combination of the two. We want to ask you one more question before we wrap things up. Just since, you know, you are very engaged with all this Avalanche equipment now. And so what's one product that you would really recommend for our uh, backcountry outdoorsy uh, listeners? I think you should have three, but my favorite one, you know, I always, of course, carry a probe shovel and a transceiver. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm particularly fond of my transceiver. It's the... Uh, Pulse Barrier Vox by Mammut. Mm-hmm. And it's pricey, but it's it's so simple and it's got some really great simplicity and development for multiple burial scenarios and and things like that. But you know, the best transceiver you can use is the one you know how to use. Absolutely. Yeah. I've heard I've never actually used a transceiver because I don't do backcountry skiing, but I know that transceivers need to be easy to use. Um, so that's a good point that you make. Tate, Russell, and I have really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot for joining us. We wish you the best of luck down the road and enjoy the summer. Yeah, we will do. Thanks for the uh, opportunity, guys. Hello, Meister fans. Thank you so much for tuning in to Tate Chamberlain's episode. Yes, we have a bunch of skiers coming up next week on the show. And Russell convinced me to put a throwback picture on our Instagram of me at the Lake Placid water ramps. Although on this jump, I happened to really mess up. So go ahead and check that out. It's on our Instagram. Yeah, and if anyone has any other Mountain Meister-like photos, Ben and I really want to see it. So make sure you tag us. 
Lisa's been featured on plenty of networks, including CBS, NBC, PBS, ESPN, A&E, and the Weather Channel, and she even tacked on a few Emmy Awards. Check it out then.